3: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Catriona Gold. I'm a PhD candidate at University College London. And today I'm speaking with four interviewees about a new, exciting edited collection called Marxism and America, New Appraisals. The book was published with Manchester University Press earlier this year, and it's a collection of essays, chapters, on this topic. I'm gonna to let the authors say more uh, about, about their chapters. I've got two authors with me and the two editors with me. So who I'm talking with today, uh, let's run through. We've got Christopher Phelps and Robin Van Dome, both of Nottingham University. Um, so these are the editors of the book. And we've also got Mara Kier and Andrew Hartman, Mara is at Oxford University, and Andrew Hartman is at Illinois State University. So I'm very happy to have all four of them here with me today. Welcome to the podcast,
3: everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much.
2: All right. So I'm going to get going by asking uh, Christopher
3: and Robin, our editors,
2: to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to put this book Together?
4: Um, well, I'm Christopher, and I uh, am uh, an associate professor of American history in the Department of American and Canadian Studies at the University of Nottingham. And I've uh, taught, I can tell by my accent I'm American, but I've taught in England for about 10 years, and I am a lifelong a uh, scholar of the history of radicalism. I wrote a book on Sidney Hook, who was an American Marxist philosopher in the 30s, uh, and I co-authored a book with Howard Brick on uh, American radicalism called Radicals in America for Cambridge University Press. Um, and Robin, do you want to yeah. introduce yourself?
5: Thanks, Christopher. So I'm a colleague of Christopher's in the same department, American and Canadian Studies at Nottingham. I'm a lecturer in intellectual and cultural history. And um, so far, I've kind of written and researched mostly on science and natural science in the United States. But I actually kind of have a, a longstanding interest in the American left. And I'm starting to, to develop that with a project on interwar Marxists, so Marxists in the 1920s and 1930s. And I'm hoping to um, research and write a biography of Joseph Freeman uh, as my next big project.
4: And the book, uh, the, the collection Marxism and America that we're discussing today the um, from Manchester University Press came about uh, partly because we thought that it was a problem, an intellectual problem, the relationship between Marxism and America that deserved reconsideration. Um, the, at the moment that we're talking, it's it's right precisely the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. Um, and you could say since the financial crisis of 2008, there have been two political uh, trends. And one, you know, it took it took three years before the the Occupy Wall Street phenomenon detonated, um, but that changed the conversation. The the chant "We are the one uh, the very idea of occupying Wall Street, blaming the financial crisis on the bankers and the financial elite, uh, reintroduced a kind of class consciousness and class politics that um, has led, you know, to. And the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, the election of uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the flourishing of the Progressive Caucus in the Congress, and the um, organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America. There's been a rebirth of socialist politics in the United States. Now, inside the Democratic Party, for the most part, unlike prior incarnations of the American left, but nonetheless, an overt socialist left-wing politics calling for redistribution of wealth um, and pointing to uh, income and wealth inequality as a a major social problem. Um, And then you have a kind of counter phenomenon which actually manifested itself i would say first in the tea party right after the financial crisis but then has morphed into trumpism um which is an intensification of extreme right-wing politics within the framework of the gop um and that itself oddly enough raised the question of marxism in that they see um you know reds under every bed they uh Um, you know, the, the, the Biden administration trying to require vaccines of federal employees is communism and so forth. You get, um, these old McCarthyite tropes being reproduced, but you know, they, they see themselves as opposing Marxism when they're opposing the most mild centrism. So, um. We thought this is a great opportunity to bring this old question back, which has actually historiographical um, antecedents. Because, you know, this question of wh- why is it that Marxism didn't flourish in America, or what was the particular character of American Marxism, or how did Americans try to Americanize Marxism? Um, There's sort of a whole series of these historiographical questions that get at the question of what is the relationship between United States political culture uh, and Marxist social thought and Marxist movements. Um, So that's the uh, political and intellectual rationale for the volume.
5: Yeah, and I'll I'll maybe kind of take up the baton there because as well as that bigger picture um historical setting intellectual agenda and uh, there was also just a practical way in which we started talking about these ideas as colleagues and one of the things that sparked our interest in it was when andrew hartman who's here on the call and we're gonna hear from later was in the uk doing research at the british library following in the marxist tradition of being an expatriate in london doing research um, and and he, he was researching a book on marx and america and marx Marxist thought in America, and he'll maybe be able to talk a little bit more about that and how it connects to the volume as well. And we thought it would be great to have him come up to Nottingham, and we immediately found there was a lot of interest from other students, from postgraduates, from other academics in this topic, and so we expanded it into a one-day symposium symposium or conference um, with a whole host of contributions, and we were just really impressed by the enthusiasm for it. And we had a great day of debate and discussion. We had diverse perspectives there. So, you know, you'll see in the volume itself that there's no one party line on Marxism in America. There's a whole range of different perspectives. There's a big chronological range. And uh, again, in the papers that have made it into print in this collection, we go from um, the role of civil war memorialization uh, and its impact on the Marxist and socialist left in the late 19th and early 20th century in a paper from Matthew Stanley through to um, the cultural production of the left in the age of podcasts uh, and, and its impact on millennials in an essay by Tim gels. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a huge chronological range and then there's a big thematic range as well. So one of the things we ask uh, in the introduction, Christopher and I is, how has Marxism as a body of thought focused on class upon class and production engaged with gender, race, sexuality, empire, and other structural aspects of American life. So I think that's an important kind of thing that comes across again and again in the volume is that we we aren't kind of just beholden to what might be seen as the kind of classic fixations of Marxist thought and a so-called class reductionism where you reduce, of kind of human and historical experience to social class and central as that is we also bring american studies perspectives um, american intellectual history and cultural history perspectives that might prioritize categories like gender race and sexuality as well and show that these are really really relevant for many marxists and actually marxists make a lot of interesting contributions along those lines as well Um, so intellectually as we were kind of putting these conference papers together into a volume and and kind of um coming up with a final roster we also ended up taking on a couple of additional essays so papers that weren't presented at the conference to try and address some of the areas that we thought maybe um that we had a slight gap in but we started to realize there's certain recurrent uh tensions and paradoxes within marxism in particular um which um the volume kind of spoke to. So I'll maybe just briefly go through those because we, we expand on this a, a bit more length in the introduction. Um, we describe them as central antinomies, that is kind of seeming contradictions, both within Marxism and that are kind of external to Marxism as well. And we start with uh, the tension between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. Uh, this is perhaps a kind of um, inevitable part of an intellectual and political tradition that's so strongly associated with one figure. So, you know, you get so many people coming back to this debate as to what would Marx have thought or is this compatible with Marx's own writings? Um, Whereas, in fact, Marxism as a tradition is more eclectic than that and it's more heterodox than that. Um, And again, this collection, I think, shows that again and again. It's also perhaps typical, this tension between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. given at least in certain moments of American history, the the centrality of the organized communist party uh, in radical left-wing politics. I guess that's particularly true when you look at the kind of late 1930s period, maybe, um, uh, when the CPUSA was perhaps at its height of influence. And we've got a couple of essays here that look in really interesting ways about how both orthodox and heterodox positions were taken within the communist party and, and outside of it. Um, on issues of gender, the role of the family and sexuality. So there's essays by Judy Collins um, on the kind of family values, which are actually quite socially conservative that the Communist Party promoted in the Popular Front era. And then an essay by Jesse Batan that looks at the much more kind of bohemian, uh, uh, radical views on sexuality that were held by Marxists outside uh, that kind of orthodox party line. Then uh, other antinomies or tensions include that between maybe class and identity. Um, so, you know, I think uh, uh, most people would agree that um, the, the uh, idea that social classes are defined by people's relationship to the processes of economic life and the means of production in the kind of classic Marxist wording is an essential component of Marxism, which prescribes a particularly significant role to the working class historically. But I think it's also obvious to students of American history and culture that many other forms of identification are crucially important. So again, come back to um, race and racial identity, gender and gender identities, and also sexuality. Um, uh, And again, we show uh, in the essays in this volume how Marxists have actually contributed a lot to trying to understand the centrality of those forms of identity to modern uh, American capitalism itself. And there's an essay by Paul Heidemann that looks at African-American thinkers, including the very well-known African-American Marxist W.E.B. Du Bois, but also the less well-known social theorist and political theorist Oliver Cromwell Cox, who is himself an important influence on Cedric Robinson, whose book Black Marxism is actually undergoing a bit of a resurgence of attention. So so antecedents of figures who I think have a lot of contemporary relevance in political debates, not only around Marxism and capitalism, but also race in the US uh, and beyond today. And then Mara here, who again we'll hear from later, has an essay which kind of finds, I think, Marxism in, in somewhat unexpected feminist sources, looking at um, feminist debates and radical feminism in the kind of post-1970s period. Um, there's also a kind of underlying tension in Marxism and in Marxist thought between reform and revolution, right? So whether it's, it's a movement that political expression is about achieving kind of piecemeal change um, or whether it is fundamentally and necessarily revolutionary and needs a kind of complete break with the current system. And again, several of the essays um, tackle that in different ways. Sinead McEnany has an essay here on Weatherman, which is a kind of militant revolutionary offshoot of the New Left in the late 1960s. And she looks particularly at Weather Woman. As self-styled revolutionaries who, you know, no compromise. And they're not reformers, they're revolutionaries, and looks at the kind of antagonistic relationship they have with the broader feminist social and political movements, the women's liberation movement more generally. And then Andrew's essay, Andrew Hartman's essay, um, places Marxism in a kind of American tradition between liberalism and radicalism, um, and looks at the ways in which many American liberals arguably distort the image of Marx for political purposes um, and promote during the, the kind of post-Second World War, Cold War era, um, uh, an image, a liberal image of Marx as the sort of precursor of 20th century totalitarianism in particular, but, but that it's perhaps been quite hard to shift both in political life and even in academic discourse. Then finally, the last one is the biggie. So the, the relationship between Marxism and America itself. And so that's where, you know, as Christopher says, this is a kind of long-standing scholarly hobby horse for many historians and other academics who've either posited that Marxism is just foreign to America. It's antithetical to, to the United States as a country and America as a, as a kind of national imaginary. Um, and that the material conditions of American history are sort of predisposed to reject Marxist politics. But I think um, as a a, a kind of general summary of the volume, there's lots of fuel here to question that narrative, actually. And we don't want to come up with a a kind of an excessive swing the other way and say, of course, Marxism has been transformative in America. It's important to recognize the limits. But there's lots of specific um, examples where we can see Americans forging uh, a, a sort of Uh, a particular American national tradition that is infused by and informed by Marxist ideas in various different ways.
2: Thanks. That's, I mean, that's really comprehensive and so helpful, like such good context for understanding this volume and its its contributions. Um, Yeah, I mean, I was really pleased to see the kind of, the the gender and race emphases and and this question of the family sort of coming up as well and, and recurring. Um, Yeah, this isn't this isn't your uh, your ordinary. uh, Yeah, Marxist edited collection. It's it's we're kind of moving into a different place with it. So um, did was there anything uh, I wanted to ask uh, before we move on that any of you including um, Mara and Andrew wanted to say about the scope of the volume or before we move on to Mara and Andrew's chapters.
0: Well, I would just say that one of the things that I adore about the book is how eclectic it is. Um, This is not your orthodox Marxism or your orthodox history of the intellectual genealogies and cultural impact of Marxism. And that openness has allowed to bring these new appraisals and this freshness to a range of essays that take on the question about the influence of Marx in the United States in new directions, which haven't been discussed before, whether it is student radicalism or podcasts or movies from the 1980s, or um, all the literature that people talk about that have been produced by Marxist men and women in the novels. Um, It's, it's what, makes it actually a really exciting collection and I'm so glad to be able to participate in both the conference and the book itself.
3: Yeah, I would um, add to what Mara is saying. So the conference was, there was so much energy. It was one of the highlights of my career. I really loved that day, just a one-day symposium. And when Christopher and Robin um, inquired about whether I wanted to contribute to an edited collection based upon the conference, I I mean, I, of course, said yes, but I also was a little bit skeptical that the collection would be the book would be able to replicate the sort of energy and excitement of that day. Um, But I think insofar as a book can do that, it has done so in ways that Mara really highlighted. Um, There's an eclecticism here that um, is exciting and challenges me. I'm writing a book, as Robin mentioned, titled Karl Marx in America. and. Um, this book has really, I'm sort of at the end point of writing that, that particular book and this edited collection from Manchester university press has really challenged me to rethink my thesis in some really productive ways. It's a, it's a really great book and I hope that a lot of people will read it and assign it to their students, which I am doing in the spring because I'm teaching a class on Karl Marx and Marxism in America. Um, And I'm lucky to have this book to be able to assign to my students.
4: I suppose one uh, thing to add as well um, to all of these comments, which I concur with thoroughly, uh, but is uh, that in order to fill in a bit of the backstory in our introduction, Robin and I um, do a bit of digging into what Marx and Engels themselves thought about the United States, since there's no essay in the volume that actually does that, um, that it really is a collection on Marxism as a tradition and body of thought, um, following the lives of Marx and Engels in the in the content of the essays. But um, and and it's 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 a little amusing to me that a right wing in American politics that for most of the 20th century, of course during the Cold War, was adamant that Marxism is un-American, uh, completely alien and antithetical to the United States, Has and now sees the country as virtually communist and socialist. Um, and some, you know, somehow that's been lost a lot, like they've lost the plot. Um, but it it also is interesting to me when we dug around that Engels begins his career. He's not really quite a Marxist yet, I must say, by the, when he writes this. But he's he says the one place in the world where communism has been realized is America. Um, <laughs> and he's speaking, of course, about the utopian socialist experiments, the Fourierists and the um um owenites uh, who are you know creating these kind of agrarian communes um and uh a, 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 and later he would come to think of himself as a scientific socialist and to think of them as utopians um but it is the case that in early 19th century America um the 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 place where socialists saw the greatest potential to try to enact their, um their ideals was the United States where there was all this land that you could get on the cheap, um, and then you could create a kind of, um, you know, a a small colony of common ownership. Um, And then Marx and Engels had a lot to say about the American Civil War and its expropriation of slave property, which they thought is revolutionary, and they thought as that as an example to the European working class movement that, um, you know, a revolutionary expropriation of property was possible. But they were frustrated with Americans for what they called um, being in swaddling clothes. In theory, they didn't think of Americans as a particularly erudite, <laughs> theoretical people. Um, and uh, you know they're very German and steeped in Hegelian philosophy, and they thought of Americans as lightweights. I think, but. Um, in any case, this all gets at this question, I suppose, that's lurking in the background somewhat, but doesn't really frame the connection, collection. What I would say I like about all of the essays um, myself is that they kind of engage but don't obsess over a classic question, which is whether American society is exceptional. That is exempt from capitalist crisis or class struggle or socialism or something like that or or not, which is a lot of the old discussion of Marxism in America revolves around that question. Um, and it's not that the question is ignored it, it is engaged, but it doesn't it's not the focal point and it's not necessary for any one of the essays to actually address it but um, and that has been answered variously by all sorts of Marxists, from Trotsky to the to Gramsci, um, uh, who talked about Fordism and the um, ideology of the Rotary Club's uh, Americanism. Um, And, you know, Marxists tended to both deny that American society was exceptional. They said it's still a place of uh, capitalist cycles of production and crisis, um, and also is a place of class struggle and a place with socialist potentiality, but also to be frustrated by an American uh, society that often seemed kind of um, impervious to their suggestions for uh, how social solutions could be wrought um, So in any case um, it it um, it's a collection that then kind of takes off from that but as you're saying Catriona, it it's um, it explores so many other elements and as Mara said too that um, you know are really, I think, cutting edge, the essays on sexuality and gender, the thinking on race and democracy that's going on in some of these chapters. Um, and so uh, it's, it's a question, among other questions, uh, in the collection, is the way I would put it, the, ex- the old exceptionalism, chestnut.
2: Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting yeah, tidbit about, yeah, Engel's early thought on, on America uh, yeah, it's not not what I would have expected, but I guess, yeah. I mean, it, it does also it sort of hints that 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 absence in, of course, a lot of um uh yeah Western or European thought about yeah the the possibility of all this uh ch- sort of cheap or yeah available land and of course what what that's enabled by. I don't know if if that was that ever present, um, Christopher, in any of the 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 research the kind of this. Marx, Engels, thinking, or the indigenous question. I
4: yeah. mean, I, suppo- I, su- I, su- I suppose that it's um, very formative for Marx and Engels because it, it really shapes how the distinctive kind of socialism that they envisioned um, was defined, uh, was largely against the utopian socialism that had been the vogue right beforehand. And um, it's not that they thought that utopians were totally wrong. They liked the idea of common property and common ownership and shared abundance and um, all of that. It's that they thought the utopians were going about it all wrong because you can't just kind of um, have the establishment of a little island in capitalist society because let's say you're producing widgets, you know, on your utopian farm. There was, there, there, there was a famous example, for example, Oneida in New York where, um, there was a utopian colony and they made beautiful silverware, which still is made today. You might know the Oneida company. In fact, I've got some utopian social, uh, socialist, uh, silverware downstairs at the moment. Um, in any case, uh, you, you, uh, you're producing such a thing, but you're not producing it in isolation and you're up against the competitive pressures of the rest of the society. Um, You know, so it it tended towards small craft production and it tended to um, not last either as, it either didn't last as socialism because you had to just convert into a conventional business over time or you went bankrupt because, um, and so Marx's thinking about what was happening to those utopian experiments and why they didn't last and why they didn't work out led him to a different politics which was the politics focused on the working class this kind of this is why the Bernie Sanders phenomenon kind of you know fits into it where you, a class politics emerges. You're not going to create these little kind of experiments any longer. Instead, you're going to focus on the liberation of the working class, which must be the work of the working class itself. Um, and it's out of those class struggles, those industrial struggles, those wage and labor struggles, uh, and those struggles for working class dignity and power and equality that you're going to eventually get the transformation of the whole society, um, according to Marx and Engels. And they develop an entire theory of history based upon that. Um, And they see very much that going on in the United States. Uh, You know, there there are various uh, moments, um, like 18. um, you know, the struggles of the 1870s and 1880s, uh, that are massive class battles in the United States that they see very much as indication of this, not just being a European phenomenon. Um, so.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, yeah, there's limitations, right? That's really helpful. And I think also, you know, then on top of that, of course, um, yeah, I mean, perhaps we could sort of The turn away from that that sort of utopian thinking. There's smaller communities. I mean, maybe there is some awareness in there also of the fact that those are not um, those are often enabled by maybe other forms of dispossession. I mean, we can think of more contemporary contexts too where that happens. Um, So, for like, yeah, some of the optimism of those early experiments might be sort of tarnished when considering. Um, yeah, the sort of theft of land in, in that early US context, right? That, that, was, that was one thing I thought it's maybe, yeah, appropriate to acknowledge um, in this context of thinking about the US and, and Marxism. Um, so I want to move on to, uh, let's start with Mara if that's okay Mara. Um, I'd really like it uh, if you could introduce yourself um, and I'll say first the chapter that Mara is going to be discussing um, which is absolutely fascinating is called Class Commodity Consumption Theorizing Sexual Violence During the Feminist Sex Wars of the 1980s. So Mara how did we how did we get to the point of writing this?
0: <laughs> well, uh, the short answer is that uh, Christopher dropped me an email and said, surely you have some opinions about <laughs> Marx and feminism. <laughs> and my response was, of course, I do. Are you sure you want to hear them? <laughs> and, uh, and yes, he said, um we would love to hear them, and I was able to present a much longer, much more rambling piece um, at the conference, but we, uh, we tidied it up and tightened it up um, to address one of the big questions um, in second-wave feminism, which is, why, were, why did the fragmentation happen over pornography? in what became known as the feminist sex wars in the 1980s. But the longer question of how I got to this essay um, and got to this topic has to do with um, the projects that I'm currently working on. So I'm working on two projects. The first one and the generative one was a history of rape in New York City from 1900 to 1930. And I was looking at a range of sources, including uh, some questionnaires that were coming out of the Bedford Hills State Reformatory in New York City, um, which discussed a lot of the sexual violence that had happened and why a lot of the girls who were in there were actually put into the reformatory because they had been raped. Now, these are really common sources, commonly used sources by uh, women's historians writing about popular culture uh, in New York City in the early 20th century. But my question was, why did none of them talk about this? They hadn't talked about these girls being raped. They hadn't talked about the sexual violence that they had experienced and the impact that it had had on their lives. And I was really confused. So I started looking at the people who were writing and the historians that were writing, and most of them were writing, and their books were coming out in the 80s and the early 90s. Um, people like Kathy Pice, whose work, you know, is so incredibly informative to my own, and I would not be here without her. But she was definitely a pro-sex feminist. And she is writing with a particular view about the liberatory aspects of Sex, And so the more I started digging into it, I'm like, okay, what did pro-sex feminists actually think about different aspects of sexual violence? And so taking the the lens, um, I started working on what became another project, which is how feminists from the second wave to Me Too have viewed sexual violence and the ways in which using the lens of sexual violence changes our understanding of the different factions within feminism. So I started writing a bit of a new story uh, as a result. Um, The heterodox or the orthodox narrative, mine is the heterodox narrative, but the orthodox narrative is that second wave feminism, particularly radical feminism, uh, with people like Andrea Dworkin, Kate Millett, um, Millett, uh, uh Shulamith, Firestone, and others that are coming out of the new left, that they had been very much involved in SDS and the anti-war movement, and then got really tired of the chauvinism and the dismissal of gender and sexuality as a concern. Um both intellectually, but also organically within the movement um, and the power relations within the movement. But that intellectual origin, that organizational intellectual origin, um, had a very important influence on the way feminism developed in the 70s and 80s. Um, The orthodox story goes that um, there came, that there was The fragmentation that happened over whether sex and pornography was good or bad um, in the 80s, and most people were, and the hegemonic view for so long was that the uh, pro-sex feminists, of course, had it right. And the anti-pornography, the anti-violence feminists, as they like to call themselves, were heritans and Puritans. (laughs) Um, now, what I argue is, in fact, that what we have is a long-standing um, tension between Marx and Freud um, in the early feminism and in the fragmentation. And what you have with the second, the um, what you have with the uh, pro-sex feminism is a winning of Freud. And with the anti-violence feminists, you have a doubling down, a repudiation of Freud and a doubling down on a more Gramscian idea of cultural hegemony and of the class impact of, but women as a class, not class economic, but the class impact of the commodification of women and of women's bodies and women's sexuality, and the way in which that discrimination and objectification um, keeps women back. So it's um, so normally in the orthodox views, there's a following of the factions but not the intellectual genealogies and what I like to think that I add by looking at sexual violence, by looking at an intellectual problem and how different groups of feminists try to conceptualize the causes and consequences of sexual violence. One you get with the pro-sex view, much more Freudian, liberatory, individualistic, view. While with the anti-violence feminists, you get a much more class-based, materialist view of commodified women and how it keeps women as a group repressed
1: and oppressed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
5: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: Absolutely fascinating, and um, I'm so I'm I'm so intrigued, and yeah, want to want to hear so much more about these other projects too. I'm I'm wondering, um, Mara, if, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But to me, it seems like um, the, the question that's that's forming in my mind is: um, to me, it seems that a sort of pro-sex feminism is fairly hegemonic on the left, and and that's despite sort of radical feminism's class analysis seeming much more. Consonant with, you know, Marxist thought or even other forms of radical, some other forms of radical thought. Um, and, and I'm wondering if. I'm wondering if your chapter maybe speaks to that in in the contemporary moment and how perhaps we might be seeing a revival of certain forms of radical feminist thinking under different guises now. I I don't know if that's something you've noticed too, or if you'd agree, but I'd be really curious about your thoughts on how this moment that you were looking at connects to the contemporary.
0: Yeah, I think one of the big sort of elements or elephants, in not elements, but it's also an element. Elephants <laughs> in the room is um, the the trans-exclusionary, gender-critical women um, who have taken on the term radical feminist. Um, and one of the things that really sort of shocked, well, it didn't shock me, but it was so strongly there, was how a lot of the radical feminists like Shulamith Firestone, Kate Millett, and Andrea Dworkin were very trans-inclusive because they were against biological determinism and they embraced an ideal of the, of androgyny, which we would now call sort of a non-binary ideal. Um, So one of the things that has happened um, is the way in which since that time is the way in which radical feminism as a term and as sort of an intellectual understanding has changed between then and now. Um, And now there's this sense that radical feminism is very biologically essentialist um, and is tied into this idea of women are women and men are men. Um, and that there's never a twain, you know, there's, there, there's, there is no non-binary gender fluidity. Um, and I think I'm not going to tie it into some of the fragmentation. I'm not going to take the time now, but about some of the fragmentation that happened with the sex wars. But one of the ideas that one of the closing down, that happened, one of the, the sort of roads not taken that happened in the 80s and 90s had to do with um this question of materialism and essentialism and whether and not whether or not you know we are culturally constructed, whether gender is culturally constructed or not. But it's this ongoing tension between Freud and and Marx. Um, and I think what we're struggling with now with something like Me Too is a fundamental shifting, um, and I would say, unfortunately, with this anti-trans discourse, um, we're, we're, we're struggling with new narratives, and there are a lot of new narratives being produced, and there are a lot of new templates, templates, um, for how we talk about gender. There are a lot of new templates for how we talk about sexual violence. Are men as a class responsible for women's re- oppression? Is it not all men? Um, and this hasn't, people haven't had the time to theorize a lot of this work. So we are in this exciting, generative, difficult, exclusionary but also inclusionary moment in which we're trying to figure out where we're going to go and how it's going to be theorized. And I hope, you know, I hope collections like this and conversations like this will enable us to look at the radical heritage of gender and sexuality and how it's been conceived um, to create an open, more liberatory but also a less oppressive version of what it means to be radical
4: and if if I could just interject a little bit as editor, um, I, I think Mara's essay is just phenomenal um, and the the I, I see it to answer your question, Catriona, that it's 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 an intervention in our moment which I I see a revival of the strand of feminism that, um, you know, uh, the kind of Dworkin, McKinnon, radical feminism since the Me Too movement. I think people have been going back to that in a way that seemed that it would never happen again after the sex positive critique of them. Um, and, and, and yet, um, I see Mara's essay as kind of a, uh, you know, there's an old Hegelian thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And uh, if you take the radical feminist critique of pornography in the 70s as the thesis and the sex positive feminists as the antithesis, and now we're grappling toward a synthesis in which you could be both sex positive and have a critique of sexual violence. I have to say, I was, um, you know, I told Mara, I abs- you know it's I th- I don't want to pick favorites in the volume um, the, I love Mara's essay but I think it's the one I disagree with the most <laughs> and, and uh, you know we, we had a lot of, we had a lot of conversation <laughs> in the uh, copy editing stage shall we say um, but she's got this line that really made me think about you know where do the sex positive feminists of the seven, of the you know sort of 80s take up the question of sexual violence uh, nowhere she says and I really that really got me thinking um, but the 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 bigger question to connect this all to Marxism which I think Mara does in her essay is that she, she you know a, an Orthodox Marxist maybe a more proper Marxist than anyone in this conversation would um, <laughs> <laughs> would, uh, would say that these radical feminists had departed from Marxism because they, they only care about sex um, as a social division. Um, but Mara helps us understand how the peop- very people who articulated such a worldview were deeply informed by reading Engels and, as she says, grappling with Engels and Freud and Marx. Um, and she makes a case for continuity, which, um, again, I resist – but I find highly intriguing and productive, uh, and also it um, really jumped out at me when I happened to be reading *The German Ideology*, which is one of the classic Marxist texts. That they're they're talking about that primordial moment in you know anthropological prehistory when class comes about, and they say it comes out of the family, it comes out of gender, it comes out of male domination and men seizing um, control and ownership. Um, and so actually the original Marxist theory of the origination of class is a gender theory. Get your head around that. Um, and (laughs) so I'm learning from Mara, even as I'm arguing with Mara. (laughs) So,
2: well, that's the, yeah, that's, that's a productive conversation then. Um, yeah, I'm. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think I'm convinced, Mara. So I uh, <laughs> shouldn't editorialize, but uh, anyway, on that note, um, let's move on to Andrew Hartman um, and his excellent contribution to the volume. So Andrew's chapter um, is called "Rethinking Karl Marx: American Liberalism from the New Deal." to the Cold War. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself and talk us through how this connects with your work more broadly um, and how you came to write this chapter?
3: Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, um, I've long been at work on this big book titled Karl Marx in America. And luckily, finally, it's approaching uh, its end phase. Um, And when Looking at the so, so what it is is essentially a reception history of Karl Marx from the 1840s to the present. Now, obviously, in the 1840s, there wasn't any reception of Karl Marx in the United States, but I'm very interested in the early phases of the book and what Karl Marx had to and Engels had to say about the United States and how their observations about the United States shaped more generally their theory of capitalism because I think that's a really important sort of element of Marx reception going forward but in tracing this long history of how Americans have thought about and sometimes acted on the ideas of Karl Marx I've noted that there are probably um, there are several of these sort of boom and bust phases in Marx reception history that is there are times when lots of people especially on the left but not exclusive to the left, are reading Karl Marx, talking about Karl Marx, um, and Marx in some fashion informs the way they think about the world, and in particular, the way they think about American history um, and U.S. politics. Um, And the first of these phases was during the Gilded Age, when in particular, the um, focus was on the sort of militant labor movements and, and the Socialist Party eventually of Eugene Debs. Uh, The second big boom phase was the 1930s. Uh, That's probably the time period in American history when more people, more Americans were reading Marx, thinking about Marx than perhaps at any other time. I think for obvious reasons due to the economic catastrophe that was the Great Depression. Then there's the 60s. um, And then there's, I guess I'm tentatively thinking we're in the midst of the fourth Marx boom period in U.S. intellectual history. But one of the things I'm really interested in is how we go from boom to bust, why it is that there's this flourishing reception of Marx, and Marx is everywhere in the discourse, and then to some extent, Marx disappears, although I would argue what happened from, and, this, and so this is the sort of um, argument I make in the chapter that um, is under discussion right now, that the period of the early Cold War, so the 1950s, this is the McCarthy period, right? Um, It's a conservative political period in many ways. There's a lot of repression of Marxist or socialist ideas during this time period. And so the obvious answer is that um, Marx quit flourishing because of the Red Scare, because of the Cold War, because the only nation in the world at that time that was organizing itself supposedly off off Marxist principles, the Soviet Union, was then the declared mortal enemy of the United States, right? So um, any favorable impression of Marx was going to be extremely limited in that context. Um, And so that's the obvious answer. And there is a lot of truth in why there was a shift in Marx's reception from the 1930s to the 40s and 50s. But I discovered two things in really sort of digging into this intellectual historical research. First of all, I discovered that most of the liberal intellectuals during the 40s and 50s, in fact, did not ignore Marx. Marx was everywhere in their um, voluminous writings about American politics. But rather than a favorable impression of Marx, they used Marx... Um, as a sort of like ghost it, Marx became a ghost in the machine for them. Marx was the antithesis of what it meant for them to define an American political tradition. And what these liberal intellectuals really did during the 1950s, 40s and 50s was uh, redefine an American liberal political tradition. They invented one um, based upon their negative reading of Karl Marx. But the other thing that I discovered, Um, in this research is that it wasn't just the Cold War. It wasn't just anti-communism that um, made Americans sort of rethink Marx, made American liberals rethink Marx. It was also the New Deal. It was also FDR. And that this history actually begins in the 1930s such that there's this um, sort of boom in Marx theory, and you have all of these left-wing intellectuals who are sort of hitting the libraries and and trying to come up with a way to explain the Great Depression, a way to explain American history, and they're reading Marx and Marxist scholars intensely. Um, and then all of a sudden, there's this shift in focus that you even see to some degree in the Communist Party, to some degree... And, Especially with the sort of larger milieu of the Popular Front, to sort of thinking about the New Deal and FDR as the way forward, and so earlier in the discussion, Robin mentioned the tension in the book that uh, between reform and revolution, and I think this really highlights that tension in a nice way, to the degree that there were a bunch of uh, left-wing revolutionaries in the United States who, um, because FDR offered an alternative to not only the sort of laissez-faire, much more conservative political system that you might say emerged during the Gilded Age, during the earlier parts of the Industrial Revolution. Um, um n- FDR and the New Deal offered an alternative to that, but also an alternative to Karl Marx that sort of softened Marxism in the United States and and then later paved the way for uh, a much more conservative Cold War liberal view. Um, and you you can even see this in the um, origins of American studies. Now, now, a lot of people tend to think that American studies emerged, um, and Michael Denning has argued that American studies emerged uh, in the 40s and 50s, as a Cold War project, um, sort of to count to counter Marxism. On the one side, you have American exceptionalism; on the other side, you have Marxism. Um, but in fact, some of the most influential early theorists of American studies, like F. O. Matheson, were leftists. They were members of the Popular Front. They had even tinkered with Marxism in, during the 1930s, but they had come to believe, as part of this larger Popular Front worldview that uh, Marx was not appropriate to an American radicalism. And so they really began, Matheson himself focused intensely on the American Renaissance. So these um, transcendentalist thinkers of the 19th century, but as a project, more generally speaking, American studies emerged as an attempt to be radical, but not Marxist and i think this as much as anything else lays the groundwork for cold war, cold war liberalism so the the sort of like uh unfavorable view of marx that emerges in the cold war has a lot to do with the soviet union has a lot to do with stalin but also has a lot to do with fdr ironically
2: okay thank you that's a great great summary um and yeah i'm wondering if if well i'm wondering if you'd if you'd like to say anything else about sort of w- where you're going from here and how this, how this chapter is going to connect with your, yeah, your future work?
3: Well, one of the things I show in the chapter is that there were still undercurrents of thought and politics that were deeply embedded in the Marxist tradition. Um, But that also were attempts to connect with American culture, American politics, American civilization, as you will. And perhaps the two most interesting, um, and I would say eventually influential thinkers, these are thinkers who really connected with the social movements of the 1960s that sought to re-engage with Marxism in eclectic and interesting ways, um, were C.L.R. James, uh, the Trinidadian. Rather famous author, author of the rather famous Black Jacobins, which is a deeply Marxist text, and Raya Dunayevskaya, who was a um, Russian immigrant who maintained a sort of Marxist humanism throughout her life. Um, they both wrote really interesting books during the nineteen fifties about American history and American culture that were deeply indebted to a Marx to Karl Marx and a Marxist worldview, but that also, I think paid close attention to currents in American history. And and so the larger sort of argument they make is one that I agree with intensely. And it's one of the reasons that I'm writing this larger book on Karl Marx in America. And that is that Marx is a theorist of freedom and that the United States offers a nice sort of canvas for thinking about that because it's the nation in world history perhaps that rhetorically seems most committed to the idea or philosophy of freedom or liberty and yet the areas of american life where most americans spend most of their time that is at work is deeply unfree and marx offers a theory as to why when people are at work they are not free and how to how to achieve freedom in that larger context this is something that clr james and raya Dunayevskaya Paid, paid intense interest to, and to me, sort of speaks to the larger project about this tension, this sort of Marx America dialectic, as Robin and Christopher call it in the introduction to this collection. Right. Yeah. And I would, I would add that I, I would just quickly add that the I would argue that one of the reasons why these two figures in particular sort of stayed close to Marx during a time period of what i would call political conservatism or a conservative intellectual milieu defined as cold war liberalism i would argue it's because they were they were outsiders by virtue of race by virtue of gender by virtue of nationality they were truly outsiders and thus um, i think it was very difficult for example for a lot of uh, black people to identify with cold war liberalism at a time period in which um cold war liberalism i would say largely ignored or erased race as a problem in in terms of like redefining what it meant what the american political tradition meant because they defined it in sort of opposition to totalitarianism which they associated with marxism liberalism for them was pluralistic it was about the open society and yet there were these large um there, there were there were ways in which the american society in the 1940s was deeply closed off and if you were A black man from Trinidad, or a woman who had immigrated from Russia and was uh, had had a working class background, um, you would not have sort of agreed with the Cold War liberals just on on the face of it that America was an open pluralistic society, and so you would have looked elsewhere, and they they turned to Marx.
2: Mm Hmm. Yeah, I think that that kind of interplay is really really interesting and important to think about, and thinking also about kind of how. The security state, um, you know, constructed, or you know, Hoover is at least certainly saw, or seemed to genuinely see um, civil rights activism as Russian agitation, right? And and so if you're kind of put in that yeah right, put in that box, put in that yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that I mean, because there's more to say about that and. Uh, black Lives Matter now, too, and how that's been talked about. But that's a whole other conversation, maybe. But I, I wouldn't mind your comments on the historical or contemporary. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, just quickly, I think W.E.B. Du Bois, his biography offers like the most interesting trajectory here because, um, you know, he's the first Black person to earn a PhD from Harvard. And so he's really sort of at the core of the American elite, American liberalism, and his earliest works, American liberals now and for a long time have claimed as part of the liberal tradition, mm-hmm. and yet he increasingly, over the course of his life, becomes more and more skeptical of the American of American liberalism or the American mainstream, such that by ni- the 1930s he writes one of the best works of American historiography, Black Reconstruction in America, which. Um, is a deeply Marxist text. He it's it's eclectic in its Marxism, but I would argue it's deeply Marxist or it's part of this larger Marxist tradition. Mm-hmm. Um at, at the time he was reading Marx, thinking about Marx, and he he sort of frames Reconstruction in a Marxist sort of overall worldview. But it gets even more interesting for Du Bois than that. Late, you know, he lived into his 90s and um, by the by, the early 1960s, he had joined the Communist Party and then emigrates to Africa. And both of those acts to me were like a final FU to the United States um, at a time period in which this is like he's, he, his death, uh, he died on the day of the March on Washington, right? So I think that aspect of Du Bois's biography has not been, is not well known enough and should become a part of the larger way in which we discuss the limitations of liberalism, for example.
4: And if, if I could just take that forward a bit, black lives matter is a um, telling example of, of what we were kicking around before in that there's an interview with one of the three founders where she says, um, you know, that this other co-founder of the of the organization black lives matter um, and i both came into this steeped in marxism and that interview has been clipped and you know used all over right-wing talk, talk radio and fox news and so forth to say black lives matter is a marxist movement and it gets at the complexity of this topic because it affirms that marxism indeed has informed certain thinkers in the united states black Labor movement, feminist and so forth, um, who then were thought influencers or thought leaders, as the business press says, um, and and made their mark and yet of course it's a gross distortion to say that these entire social movements are marxist they aren't most people aren't conscious marxists um and it gets at the kind of paradox of marxism in america in that marxism has had probably more influence in seasoning american political life than it's given credit for um and uh, uh, and yet it also can be exaggerated the extent of its influence and if i could also just speak to um what I think is, um, you know, Andrew's essay is outstanding, of course, but the it gets it it it, it, it it's it's its strengths are, um, you know, those of the rest of the collection. I think in that, um, or it's it's maybe emblematic of a strength of the collection, if I could put it that way, uh, in that it's clearly about intellectual history, political thought, and ideology. And a lot of the other essays are, you know, a kind of study in ideology, if you will. Um, you know, how, how is a worldview shaped? Uh, how does it engage with the American landscape? Um, and you get that in, you know, Du Bois is taken up also by Heidemann's essay, um, Nick Witham's fascinating chapter on Howard Zinn and how a people's history of the United States was a bestseller and a lot of Americans were reading it just to understand America was written by somebody who was a heterodox Marxist and and that informed his writing of that popular book. Um, And so um, you get get that across the collection and race, just like gender, is braided into these essays consistently, I think. Um, uh, So the idea that race and class... Are somehow, um, you know, um, that you have to give up one or the other in your social thought um, is belied by the many thinkers who have seen them as, you know, inseparable, um, and that your, your understanding has to come to terms with both of them in American life. Um, so...
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, certainly there is no, there's no, there's no outside to race or gender, right, when we're thinking about these things. So I think that, that, yeah, that makes the collection particularly valuable. Um, I'm wondering, I've now taken a lot of uh, all four of you's time. So um, I'm, I'm wondering if anyone has any, any anything they you've got a burning desire to say before the end of this interview, any closing comments before we wrap up?
4: Oh, just thank you very much for hosting us. And I hope people, um, you know, delve into the collection. It's a bit expensive in its current edition. (laughs) We're hoping if you could get your local library to buy it, they might um, sell enough copies of this hardcover that they could put it out in paperback and make it uh, um, uh, purchasable by the people.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's a great general point. Yeah, if you can't afford a book, request it. With the library, like,
4: please. Yeah, yeah. and support, <laughs> yeah. support public libraries. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I, I might just add another another closing point. Um, you know, people, readers uh, might come to this through either of its kind of two dualities, American history and culture or Marxism. And I think it's equally profitable for, for both kinds of readers. So you might be thinking, well, I, I know a lot about American history and culture. Uh, how can I expand you know, my understanding of that through the lens of Marxism and vice versa, you might be interested in Marxism from a much more theoretical point of view. But with this collection, you can see how that theory is developed and put into practice in specific American contexts. So I think, you know, there is there is potentially a broad appeal. So, so let's hope we do get that paperback cheaper edition.
3: <laughs> Amen to that.
2: Okay, well, with everyone's, you know, like hopes and prayers, uh, listening to this podcast, maybe we can like actualize that, um, yeah. that paperback for us all. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. Uh, this has been, um, we've been discussing, um, Marxism and America new appraisals, which is an edited collection, uh, just come out with Manchester university press earlier this year. Um, the editors who are here with us today are Christopher Phelps and Robin Van Dome. And we've also had the pleasure of speaking with two of the contributors, Mara here and Andrew Hartman. Um, I'm Katriona Gold, your host. Uh, you can find me and most of my interviewees on Twitter. And I highly recommend you check out the book, support your local bookstores, university presses And if you can't buy a book, it's always a great idea, as we said, to uh, request it at your university's library. (laughs) Thanks so much, everyone, for joining me. Thank you. Thank
0: you.
3: Thank you. Thank you.